Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Here on the show, we talk about how to grow your portfolio, what makes a good investment, the strategies in real estate investing and how to execute them. We also, of course, keep you up to date on news and trends that we're seeing in the market and occasionally have an awesome guest on. But today we don't. It's just me, your buddy, Nick, the co-host of this podcast, a real estate investor and a mortgage agent. And I'm lucky enough to be joined by a much smarter man than myself and my co-host, Daniel Foch. Dan, welcome to the show. How you doing? What's going on? I'm doing great. Um, I I was a little insulted there that you didn't consider me to be an awesome guest. I thought, you know, the, the, I thought the Tuesday episodes that you hosted and I was the awesome guest, and the Friday episodes uh, I hosted and you were the awesome guest. But oh, I, I we guess can, I was we can wrong make it like about that. the arrangement. Um, <laughs> my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker, uh, director of economic research at a company called Rare Real Estate. Uh, I do a lot of media stuff as well for a bunch of different uh, groups creating content on the real estate space. And I'm also a real estate investor and co-host of this podcast. And uh, in today's episode, we are going to be talking about a big multifamily deal in a gorgeous neighborhood of Toronto. Uh, we're going to be talking about employment and the economy. We're going to be talking about the Canadian Real Estate Association stats and what's going on nationally with house prices and volume. And um, I actually write on the note of the content creation and media piece, I actually write an article about these Korea stats as well as the uh, the TREB, Toronto Real Estate Board stats uh, on a monthly basis uh, for uh, Real Estate Magazine. And so we're going to be reading from that article as well. So if you're more of a visual learner and you want to look at the charts and read the article that we wrote, um, we uh, will link that in the show notes as well. But before we do that, Nick, tell me about this deal. Well, we start today's episode in the beautiful High Park area of Toronto. Now, High Park's 399 acres in the middle of Toronto is the second largest public park featuring many hiking trails, sports facilities, diverse vegetation, a beautiful lakefront, easy public transit access, a dog park, a zoo, playgrounds for children, a couple of eateries, greenhouses, picnic areas, and it even hosts various events throughout the year. Actually, here's a little trivia for you, Dan. Is it the largest park in Toronto? Uh, no. What is? Ontario Place. Centennial Park at oh. 525 acres. Man, who needs a park? Just put some condos there. Let's go. I'm kidding. Interesting. Don't, don't do that. How does that compare to Central Park? Because you said the middle of the city, and I wouldn't call High Park the middle of the city at all. Although it is interesting that they are talking about putting a park over that railway deck that would actually be in the middle of the city and would make Toronto one of the coolest cities in the world. But Central Park is like... 843 acres and a cool park. You can get lost in that one, I think. Central Park. Yeah, I'm sorry. High Park does not hold a candle to Central Park. And you're right. I did misspeak. It is definitely not in the center of the city. It's it's fairly far to the west, kind of where Toronto borders New Toronto and Etobicoke. Um, you know, I love a good park in a city, right? The Stanley Park in, in Vancouver, which again, isn't in the middle of the city. It's kind of it's kind of off on one, its own little section, but a park in the city is is just an awesome thing to have. And it is in the center of the universe, after all. 
Yeah, yes, there's there's that for sure. And the part that you're talking about is, I believe it's on like the the CIBC Square. So that's a bunch of new towers that they're building, right? Essentially, where the old Union Station bus terminal was, uh, they're building over a highway and over the train tracks and everything. And yeah, there's there's plans to put a pretty big park there, which would be cool. It'd be kind of like what New York did with the old rail line, the elevated rail line. It's now an amazing walking trail. Yeah, the um, high line's pretty cool. I guess the line, city, the city probably needs to get their revenue in order before they start making uh, big capital expenditures like that. And probably need to get a new mayor at some point as well. would be not Yikes. a bad idea. Yikes, yeah. <laughs> but let's, we digress. Uh, let's not go into that. Um, you might also know or have heard of High Park for its cherry blossoms. Dan, you're one of those people that goes every year to take pictures and yeah. pose in front of the cherry trees, aren't you? Huge, huge cherry blossom guy, actually. Um, on that note, uh, we know, so we know that the, the, um, traffic in the area is mostly influencers, but let's also look at the housing stock in the high park area. So types of homes, it's honestly a pretty suburban area for, uh, for being very, so close to downtown Toronto, uh, 42% detached homes, 40% condominiums. So more detached than condos, crazy for a city, right? Mm -hmm. 14% semi-detached, 2% multi-unit. 1% 1% townhouse and 0% condo townhouse. And and so this building is within that, that very, very scarce type of product, only 2% multi-unit. And I was actually down there today with a, a client as well who buys and renovates detached houses um, and loves the area, really, really well-versed in the history of and the, the all of the old uh, brick buildings and just really, really fascinating character. So, you know, absolutely beautiful assets there on the detached side as well. Really, really cool neighborhood. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Let's dive into the deal of the day here. So obviously it is in the High Park area. And as Dan mentioned, it fits into that very small niche of 2% multifamily in the area. This one's special, 230 South Kingsway, listed at 7.625 million, 7,625,000. And I like it. It's a it's a it's a solid looking big multifamily building. Dan, read us the script the description here from uh, from the MLS listing, would you? Yeah, sure. So if anybody's interested, this is on Realtor.ca. We only uh, talk about public listings here, cause, so you can just go and we're really just reading off of a website. Um, so you can go on Realtor.ca, search this up. Two thirty South Kingsway. This is from the description. Assumable existing three point three percent fixed financing until twenty thirty. Cool. Say right? it again. And and you're starting wow. to see this more. People marketing the debt with the asset. Twelve unit residential building nestled along the South Kingsway. Renovated existing apartments, eight units, plus four units that were added in 2019. Ten of which are large two bedrooms. And I I'm actually not sure. I have to check with. Well, maybe we check with our paralegal when we have her on the show whether or not since those were added legally post 2018, whether or not they're subject to rent control because. Units after 2018. So that would be, that could be a a bit of a bonus. Apartments are separately metered for electricity with pony panels and laundry machines inside each unit. New units have in floor hydronic heating. All new mechanical and electrical systems have dedicated exterior entrances with individual apartment shutoffs for electrical and uh, and plumbing. This is, you know, you can tell this is an experienced operator. The mm-hmm. just given they they knew to go get that long term CMHC debt, they knew to to individually meter everything, they knew to put in floor heating in, like just 
it's nice to come check, across assets check all like those this. boxes yeah. yeah for sure it's it's really a like you know from a from an investment standpoint it, you love to see all of this stuff there um time on realtor 35 days now what we're going to do here is talk about the rents, get some information, and then, of course, we're going to plug it into Landlord.io, which just makes this whole process so much easier for us. So if we look at the 10 large two-bedrooms um, and assume that we have two one-bedroom in that, the average rent now, there's no rent on here. It does say rent, roll, and expenses are available. That's usually you can request those after you submit uh, a letter of intent or if you're if you're in negotiations. Not something usually given out on an asset like this just by request. So I had to go to our friends at zumper.ca and pull average rents. Now, these are kind of shocking, but the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Toronto right now, 2900 per month. Dan is shaking his head. You can't see that, but he's and I'm and shaking. You my might head even, too. you know, these units are big because it's an older building, so you might even be seeing higher rents than that. And I think you are actually just based on the cap rate that I'm seeing that you got from Landlord.io. Um, mm. That you know the cap rate's actually higher than that because I have seen the the income, but um, you also in a nice suburban area. So these are family yeah. friendly units. Like they're going to command a premium. So anyway, I will, I'll let you continue there. But so it could, could be higher, but yeah, let's, let's look at the averages. Yeah, it's here. always yeah, nice to model based on averages. So you're conservatively underwriting the deal. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the average rent for a one bedroom apartment in Toronto, $2,279 a month. So if we take those 10, two bedrooms and times it by 2,900, pretty easy math at 29,000, Two bedrooms, uh, sorry, two one bedrooms, 2,229 comes out to 4,558 for a total monthly income of 33,558. So plug those numbers into Landlord and let's see what this deal looks like. Dan, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk through the details of the deal here. Then I'm going to let you jump in and, and tell our, our lovely audience here about the first year metrics and the long term 10 year metrics. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Okay, so I left the purchase price the same at seven six two five because that does feel like a pretty solid price. I don't think that you know you might be able to negotiate a bit, but let's leave it there. Well, Expected monthly I, rent. I also think, I mean, a seller who has ten year three point three percent financing is probably not in a hurry to sell. So no, there might exactly. not be a lot of negotiability there. Exactly. So left that as is the monthly rent. We just went over just over 33,500. Uh, I didn't put any improvement costs here because from the pictures, from the description, from the conversations we've had about it, it doesn't look like it needs any work. Closing costs are about 177,000. Loan to value, I put at uh, 68% putting a 32 deposit down mortgage rate. This is where things get interesting because I'm usually putting a six or a seven sometimes in this, uh, in this box that you have to fill. And I was able to put a 3.3% mortgage in there. That felt good. Felt like I was living in a different time right there for a second. Uh, and then the same stuff on long-term assumptions, I put 95% occupancy. That might be a bit low, just a hedge property appreciation at 4%. Again, low to hedge. Annual rent appreciation, we're only allowed to do 2.5%. And annual inflation kept it a little bit lower just to match the appreciation at 4%. Uh, and then threw an extra $1,000 in there as monthly costs and added the property tax in at 35000 So after all of that being said, Dan, what does year one and year 10 look like? 
So year one is you know, 3.9, uh, 3, 3. just shy of 4% cap rate, which is, I mean, it, we are seeing stuff selling a little bit higher return than that in Toronto now. You're starting to see it. This is really a standout asset, I would say. Like, looks really nice. The, the suites look great. I'm actually pro- likely going to tour it next week. Um, you know, it, it really is a standout product, and, and I think the seller knows that. Um, you've got rents or big units and and so on a per unit basis if you were to run an evaluation to find comps it's probably going to look uh priced a little bit high but the the units are massive they're probably twice the size of the average unit and so you really almost want to look at a per square foot basis where it's actually likely going to pencil low um the interesting part is you know on a deal like this if you're buying at a four cap you usually aren't seeing a cash on cash return that's positive. You're probably bleeding out, but because the debt scenario on this is so good. And remember, you always want to see a cash cap rate that's higher than the, the interest rate that you're paying. You're likely going to at least be cash, cash flow positive on, on a, on a large multifamily, which is cool. It's tough to buy that way without, you know, a significant down payment in the market currently. The, on the long-term basis, you in, internal rate of return of 11.14%. And gross revenue multiple of uh, 18.94 or 93 percent, and I like the deal. To be honest, I don't. I don't think it's you know for most for most of our listeners who are you know building a portfolio from from the ground up and need to focus on cash flow first. I think that this wouldn't fit for the majority of them. It's very expensive, and it's also you know it's it's not a cash first asset. But this is a beautiful asset in a in a globally growing city that is likely to, to fare exceptionally well over the long term. So. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at this is, you know, this is out of my price range right now. It's kind of out of our, our wheelhouse and, and really what, what we're buying. But, you know, if I'm looking at Nick 10, 15 years in the future, or if I'm, if I'm in a different uh, space in my real estate investing career, this is something I would love to purchase, right? This is almost more of a, of a, an amazing asset that is acts as a savings vehicle, right? Whether it's generational wealth or, or whatever. So, I like the asset just based off of the the location, the the size, and the condition of it. Do you want to jump over to jobs before we get to Korea stats? Jobs, 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 baby. Yes, I do. Let's talk about jobs for a second now. You're probably asking yourself why we're talking about jobs on a real estate investing podcast. Well, that's because job numbers affect inflation. Inflation affects interest rates. And well, you know this by now, interest rates affect just about everything and everyone, and especially real estate investors. So the Canadian labor market posted a blowout 150,000 gain in January. This is the largest gain on record, excluding the restart from the COVID shutdown, which doesn't really count, let's be honest. This gain boosted the labor force participation rate to over 65% at 65.7, which is a plus 0.3%. Now, unemployment remained unchanged at 5%. The largest employment increases were in Ontario at plus 63,000, Quebec at plus 47,000, Alberta at plus 21,000. The unemployment rate in Quebec fell to 3.9%, whereas the jobless rate in Alberta rose slightly to 6%. Most of the gains were full-time positions, 121,000 of them. With strong gain in employment, total hours worked rose 
just under 1% in January and was up 5.6% on a year-over-year basis. So this isn't maybe what the Bank of Canada wants to be hearing is the impact of their interest rate hikes. It's quite literally the opposite of what their hiking schedule has been designed to do. And that's a little interesting. The only positive news probably is for the Bank of Canada was that the decline in average hourly wages it rose 4.5% on an annualized basis, which was down from 4.8% annualized in December. This may be due to high, the job gains being in lower wage sectors like retail and hospitality, which are kind of in the recovery phase right now. In January, actual employment declined 125,000. That's not seasonally adjusted. This was far lower than the typical decline of 20, 250 to 300,000 we see in January, again, because, you know, holiday season stuff. So what is the underlying story? Are employers adjusting to rising rates by not filling vacancies rather than making layoffs? Yeah, the key takeaways from this are that January was a strong month, but labor market data can show month-to-month volatility. For example, the strong December employment gains were revised downwards by more than 30,000 jobs. don't really know how you make a 30,000 job mistake, but But well, the jobs... Yeah, well, the jobs uh, news generated chatter about the potential for further rate hikes. The Bank of Canada is not going to react to one report, thankfully. Their decision in March will largely be determined by inflation. If inflation continues to decelerate, then this number will be back on noise and rate hikes will remain on pause. And unfortunately, if not, and I think we just saw job numbers and, and uh, come out of the States today, CPI coming out of the States, and, and unfortunately, it looks like things are moving slightly in the wrong direction. So rate hikes could potentially be back on the table. Yeah, bond yields are really reacting to the CPI, or they were reacting to the CPI numbers a couple of days ago. We mentioned this in the most recent episode, but that it seems like nobody's really anticipating that the BOC is going to cut. So, um, you know, higher for longer interest rates is kind of that theme that we're starting to see evolve here and uh, mm-hmm. might be just be the new normal that we're, we're facing. Um, to the Korea stats, the national home sales declined. The highlights here, the national home sales declined 3% month over month in January. Actual, not seasonally adjusted monthly activity came in 37% below January 2022. The number of newly listed properties rose just 3.3% month over month. So we're not seeing anything major happening on the inventory or supply side yet. Still a pretty tight market, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The MLS HPI or house price index declined by 1.9% month over month and was down 12.6% year over year. And the actual not seasonally adjusted national average sale price posted an 18.3% decline year over year in January. We saw home sales recorded over... Uh, the Canadian MLS system edged back down 3% between December 2022 and January 2023, giving back all of December's small gains and rejoined the mild down t- downward trend observed since last December. We see gains in Hamilton, Burlington, Quebec City were more than offset by declines in Greater Vancouver, Victoria, and elsewhere on Vancouver Island, Calgary, Edmonton, and Montreal. The actual, not seasonally adjusted, number of transactions in Jan of 2023, so last month, came in 37.1% below the second best January ever in 2022. The January 2023 sales figures were the lowest for that month since 2009. 
Yeah. So as I wrote, <laughs> uh, and, and we, we'll link this in the show notes, but I, I kind of summarized this, these findings in Real Estate Magazine. The, the Canadian real estate market has continued to move down below that 10-year average. There was an uptick in sales in, in December, which is very, very rare, but it did continue that downtrend with sales down now just 3% from December into January. Uh, with these holiday months, uh, they're, they're typically, you know, de- December and January, they're typically the two slowest months of the year. So it's hard to really use them as major data points. And January yeah. of 2022 was a frenzy. Um, the, the last two months have been exceptionally slow, though, for home sales in Canada. Uh, when we look at chart A from the Korea Stats report, which is in the Real Estate Magazine article, as well as just uh, if you just Google Korea Stats, uh, you'll be able to find it pretty easily. We can see that home sales have entered into this sort of sustained period of low volume, uh, and it looks a lot like we, you know, we saw in twenty or two thousand and nine, like the the Korea report mentions, the last time we saw a major recessionary period in Canada, and you know, this gap, this this you know, period of sustained low volume, has been tough for many people in the real estate industry with earnings suffering as a result of transaction volumes down. 37.1% from last year, like you said. Fortunately, based on the past cycles in Canadian real estate, you can you can look at 2009 to 2017 and even uh, 2023, you know, they're followed by a comparable rebound upward. So usually we'll see volume kind of drop below that 10-year average and then really, really rebound up. And what causes that could be, you know, affordability returning or rates getting back down to push the economy out of recession or whatever it is. But so it's really one of those periods of time where we start to see a ouch, this sucks. And, and it seems to be the theme that I'm hearing are how long can we weather the storm for and then get, you know, it's people waiting for recovery at this point or wondering when that recovery begins. Mm hmm. Yeah, no good points. And that's actually, this is a great time to announce our course, How to Time the Market for only $2,200. <laughs> i am kidding, uh, completely. It is really interesting looking at charts like this, though, seeing the dip in 2009. I mean, excluding what we saw in 2020, because um, we all know that wasn't full reality. Um, but 2023, the dip almost follows the exact trajectory as it did in 2000. Uh, start late 2008, early 2009. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, by 2025, what this chart looks like. Uh, For sure. The big, the big question on everyone's minds after last year was, what will house, what will the housing market do in 2023? Said Jill O'Dill, who is chair of CREA, it's a Canadian Real Estate Association. We may have to wait another month or two to see what buyers are planning this year since new listings are currently tricking, trickling out at a near record low levels. But that should change as the weather warms. When looking for information and guidance on how to buy or sell a property, your best bet is to contact your local realtor, continued Odile. She is right about that and the weather. I do think... You know, I think Canadians really do get seasonal depression and a little bit, little bit, and every now and then, especially in in like mid February. Bukowski, Charles Bukowski, who's like an author, used to talk a lot about that. How like human beings just need to like shut themselves in and be depressed for like three days at a time, but most people can't do that because they have jobs and whatever they got to make a living. But I mean, I don't know if I would be trusting Bukowski for much. To, to be honest, he's a bit of a wildcat. But <laughs> anyway, um, so who knows? Maybe these cycles are, are good for us. They, they do say that places it, with uh, 
you know, seasonal cycles. So like our full four seasons uh, are more productive. So New York city being a good example, very similar in, in climate to many Canadian cities. You know, that's super interesting. And maybe we will unpack that a bit in another episode because, uh, You'd you'd immediately think, well, if I was living in California, you know, when it's always sunny, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be jacked, I'd be tanned, I'd be out working all the time. But but I guess that's uh, that's not the case. Anyways, let's get back on track here. Uh, early 2023 feels a lot like 2019, where after a year in which it would become much harder to qualify for a mortgage, everyone was wondering if the market would pick back up in the spring. This is from Sean Cathcart. Korea's senior economist. In 2019, the market started off slow as there wasn't much to buy. It took off once spring listings started to come out with the Bank of Canada increasingly signaling that rates are now at the top. It's possible that the spring market this year could also surprise, particularly in areas where prices have been stable or are now stabilizing. Buyers are likely feeling increasingly confident in taking on variable rate mortgages and 2023 will probably be a good window of opportunity to be able to engage in a calmer home search and buying experience following the intense marketing conditions of the last few years. I think, um, you know, it is, uh, he's definitely right in the last statement there about the calmer home search, but uh, the variable rate mortgages, I mean, I think, you know, unless the pricing gets different, most are still going to the, the fixed side just because, you know, rational consumers pick the product that's going to maximize their buying power. And that's that's the fix right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to my article at uh, in the real estate magazine that, that references this. So Nick's reading the the REM report. I'm reading my article just to, ha- to show you're aware if you want to click through to either of those. They're both in the show notes to for your reference. Uh, the correlation between price and volumes becomes exce- exceptionally clear when looking at how prices evolved during the same periods of time. So Korea's MLS HPI continued its decline by 1.9% last month, now down 12.6% year over year. The, the actual nas- national average home price is down 18.3% from this time last year, which we mentioned in the highlights. And this continued drop in price broke last month's record, which was the largest annual drop in price seen since the global financial crisis. So we've seen another larger one. And Korea admits, and I think I think you'll be reading this part, but Korea admits that the next three months of, of price drops are going to be even worse because we know that Feb- unless you know, unless we see prices really rise, but February of 2022 and March of 2022 were the peaks of most markets. So the data points are going to be scary in the next two months. So be prepared for that. And based on research from Ben Rabideau, who's a friend of the show uh, of Edge Realty Analytics, the drop in price has now exceeded what we've seen in the 1990s, which is Canada's last major housing correction. And we'll we'll include a link to that chart that he put there in in the show notes as well. But basically, the the only correction that we haven't exceeded is the 1981 one. So 89, remember when we mentioned this on episode one of the show, if you haven't listened to it, go play, put it on 3X and let it play out through all of our episodes, please and thanks. Um, but uh, but no, episode one's great. We analyze the last three housing cycles and sort of how this could end up looking like one. And this is in line with RBC's statement that the projected price drop would surpass prior corrections from uh, their RBC economics release last year. It basically shows a chart of the 1981 crash, the 1990s crash, 2008 crash, and then 2017 as well, which wasn't so bad. And then they show their forecast for 2022, 2023, and it sucks. But 
we're probably halfway down that curve already. Basically, if their projections are correct, then the worst would be behind us. We've already seen that big steep down leg and you're kind of looking at a flat projected curve where you're just basically going to be trading sideways for a long period of time. So I guess we'll see what happens here. Yeah, we're, uh, as you said, the, you know, it, by if this chart remains true, the the worst does look like it's over. But again, it looks like it could be going sideways. Just to reiterate what Dan was saying, if you want to get a much better understanding of what previous corrections have looked like, what caused them, why they happened, and how long they lasted, and how long, more importantly, how long it took for the economy and home prices to recover, go back and check out episode one if you haven't already done that. That We chose that episode specifically because we knew it was going to be the theme for the next possibly few years at this point. Are you trying to say we told you so? I would never say <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, Simone from the Canadian Investor Podcast recommended that we start with that episode, mostly because he wanted to hear our perspective on it. And we really, really heavily researched that episode. And, and it was a good one. I, I actually go back and listen to it every now and then myself. And I reference it all the time. And I, I now have those data points that I can talk through on my own. And um, I, I just think it's worth really evaluating what counter cycles look like as Canadian real estate investors, because, it, you know, the markets aren't binary. They don't just go down and then go up. They do other things. And in a lot of cases, that's going sideways for a long time. And and we talk about that a lot in that, that uh, episode. But 1989 being the, the, the peak that we just exceeded, it took from 1989 until 2002 for that price to recover to its 1989 peak. So, you know, th- these are, are not easy uh, phenomena for, for investors to go through, especially those who bought in, you know, at, at tough times and now at increasingly tough capital costs. Um, and you know, a lot of anecdotes in the market right now that realtors are talking about, and you never know if it's really just the industry trying to spin that FOMO machine, but you're hearing about increased activity and more buyers getting off the sidelines and starting to look again, but there's really no urgency. And I, I've personally been out a lot lately with investors, listeners on the podcast. People are are eager to think about buying, but then when they really run the numbers and look at the capital costs and you look at, oh God, am I paying $250,000 in interest over the next 10 years? It really starts to become hard to rationalize for a lot of people. Um, so you know the demand side hasn't really ramped up yet. And it seems like the the lack of inventory has kind of been preventing the market from continuing to drop. We've sort of found this short-term bottom range, that sideways that we saw on that RBC chart until you get, until you start to see those one-off distress sales potentially have the ability to erode prices more. You know, this is power of sales or people selling at a loss or whatever it is. And this is really starting to feel like a market where you can find good deals, but you have to look at them. You have to be a very active buyer because there's really not much inventory out there. So Nick, maybe we'll jump back to the Korea report here. Can you give me an update on the inventory situation from Korea's report? The number of newly listed homes picked up by 3.3% on a month-over-month basis in January, led by increases across across British Columbia. That said, despite the small increase nationally, new listings remained historically low. New supply in January 2023 hit the lowest level for that month 
since 2000. With new listings up and sales down in January, sales to new listings eased back to 50%, just over 50%. This is roughly where it had been for the entire second half of 2022. The long-term average for this measure is 55%. So we're about five points, just about four, four points off of that, uh, that long-term average. There were 4.3 months of inventory on a national basis at the end of January 2023. This is close to where this measure was in the months leading up to the initial COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns and still close to a month below its long-term average of about five months. So new inventory continues to be tight, um, you know, getting close to that, but we are, you know, kind of getting close to that, that long-term average of sales to new listings ratio. Uh, we're, we're seeing a little bit fewer actually. So it is leaning a little bit more towards the buyer market than, than, than historic, uh, long-term average. Um, but in balanced market territory, um, you know, we've, we saw just a 3.3% increase in new listings month over month in January, not a super popular time to list. So, you know, you don't really month over month data doesn't matter a ton. Um, but as you mentioned, we did see just that 4.3 months of inventory. And this trickle of supply has kept the market away from a state of excess supply, which is so getting, you know, staying away from that buyer, true buyer's market, which is honestly, I, I would say based on supply and demand is likely aided in slowing further price declines in many markets, I think. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. And I think it really goes back to that first chart that shows that the market really scales back in activity when things get tough. Now we're seeing less sales, less listings, which actually means as an investor, that could be a good time where you can focus more and make the right decisions. And really, you know, there is no need to rush. There's no sense of urgency. And Dan, you and I talk about this with investors all the time that want to get into the market as soon as possible. And that's the first thing we say, like, you do not need to be rushing into anything right now. Yeah, I mean, lack of urgency is a big theme in the market right now. And it's to be honest, it's nice to see a market that on the data side is looking like it's on that long term average of the, you know, the balanced market territory. But it's also qualitatively behaving like a, a balanced market. People are buying properties conditional, you know, they're getting appraisals, they're getting inspections. And what? really, yeah. And so you're seeing a lot more <laughs> rational consumption. You're not in this sense of mania and FOMO and, and, uh, and greed, to be honest, that, that really can create a lot of risk as we're learning in hindsight, looking back towards, uh, this time last year, just a year ago. And on that note, you know, looking back a full year, let's talk a little bit about prices, Nick, what did they do in that period of time? For sure. Before before I jump into that section, I just wanted to to say one thing to to the investors that do have that sense of urgency. Because again, Dan, this is something that's come up on a number of calls that we've had. Take that energy that you have that that's creating that sense of urgency and pour it into finding your first investment and make sure it's the proper one. Focus on finding your team. Focus on building up as much knowledge as you can. Don't f focus on rushing into this market. Now, let's get back to the Korea stats here. The aggregate composite MLS HPI was down 1.9% on a month-over-month -month basis in Jan of 2023, continuing the trend that began last spring. The aggregate composite HPI now sits at 15% below its peak level, reached in Feb of 2022. Looking across the country, prices are down from peak levels by more than they are nationally in many parts of Ontario and in some parts of BC. 
and down less elsewhere. That's no surprise. Well, prices have softened to some degree almost everywhere. Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon, and St. John stand out as markets where prices are barely off their peaks at all. An interesting development in recent months has been the increasing number of East Coast markets where prices appear to have bottomed out on a month-to-month basis and are now trending back up. The non-seasonally adjusted aggregate composite for MLS HPI came in at 12.6% below its Jan 2022 reading. Year-over-year declines will likely hit their highest levels over the next two months as we move past the highest price levels on record in February and March of last year. And created notes, and and I mentioned, you know, that they make a couple of these notes on trying to clarify the data for people. So they're talking a little bit about those, how the next couple of months are going to look bad. But they also note that much of the drop is really skewed by Toronto and Vancouver area data. These more sophisticated markets did seem to behave in almost a forward-looking fashion in response to rate hikes. So like they're a little bit more sophisticated consumers trying to price in, let's call it, these rate hikes. And they saw steep declines in Q2 of 2022 kind of paving the way for these record year-over-year declines. The forward-looking markets almost behaved as though they were trying to price in an entire cycle of rate hikes once the Bank of Canada began. So as soon as they kind of TIFF kind of called the market's bluff, then basically the market just blew off on the price side. And then prices sort of just grinded down slowly or almost traded sideways. We've even seen some months up, some months down uh, in, in those markets. And Korea would expect that the next two months, as I mentioned, will post the, the largest year-over-year price decline since most markets peaked in February or March of 2022. So as I mentioned, anecdotally, I mean, People in the profession seem hopeful that rate hikes are behind us, and the real estate industry is ripe with anecdotes of a renewed energy and activity from buyers who were patiently waiting on the sidelines. There seems to be growing pressure on on 2023 spring market to really help the industry's position <laughs> yeah. and, and f- kind of floor prices and declines and and also resurrect a lot of that uh, you know the, the pain that we're seeing on on price but also on the industry that's really trading now at a kind of half steam by comparison to what it was doing this year um, and increased in- interest rates seem to have really stripped the market of, of urgency so it, it's it's an interesting position for the market to be in heading into next year yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that's that's interest rates are doing what they're supposed to do. And, you know, realtors are doing what they're supposed to do for the most part, which is uh, trying to sell homes and, and trying to, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of fear mongering out there. It's really interesting to see what headlines are chosen by what news outlets. It's also interesting to see the the activity and, and the sentiment that we've that we've spoken about, right? As you know, for instance, I, I posted on Instagram, um, a chart that uh, Ben Rabadou, who we've who we've already quoted in this episode, basically showing the the steepest drop in in home prices, and I just I threw a poll out there saying, "Is this the bottom?" And I think I had over a hundred people vote, and seventy it was seventy five that it was not the bottom, and twenty five percent think thought that we had hit the bottom. So. Again, interesting anecdotes, interesting to see where the average investor, the average consumer, and the average industry professional is. Uh, Anyways, let's get back to discussing prices. It may be worth to just go over uh, uh, the MLS HPI's price changes for our listeners to get an understanding for what's happening in the different markets across the country. 
So I'm going to start with BC because that's where I'm from and I and I miss it and I love it. The lower mainland is still moving down 1.8% last month and down 12.8% in the last year. Greater Vancouver, or as Dan calls it, the GVA, which I can't believe Apparently you do that's that, man. Banned, yeah. I think they, I got canceled <laughs> for that. <laughs> uh, Greater Vancouver down 9.6% in the last year. Fraser Valley 2.8% in the last month and 15.2% in the last year. Chilliwack and District down 22% since January last year. Vancouver Island just down 3.7% since last year. Victoria down just 1.3%. And Interior BC 5.8% down since last year. Now moving over to the prairies, it becomes exceptionally more clear that these lower price markets were really insulated from a lot of the recoil that we saw in the more credit-dependent real estate markets. So we have Calgary up 6.3% since this time last year. (laughs) And Edmonton is down 3.5%. Saskatchewan is basically unchanged in price, up 0.7%, so just under 1% year over year. Regina, very similar you know, slightly down, just under 1% to the negative. Saskatoon is up slightly, uh, 2% on the year, but a lot of those gains just happened. They're actually up uh, in in price 1.5% just in the last month. And then Winnipeg, you know, being closely proximate to that Ontario contagion to price decline, uh, Winnipeg is down about 8.4% on price. Yeah, speaking of Ontario, should we? Are we going to cover all of Ontario city by city? I feel like that'll take a while here. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably group a lot of it together and just throw it into ranges. There was only two cities that are up year over year in Ontario, and those were Bancroft, which, you know, I mean, you, you've heard us talk about Bancroft, the cryptocurrency, <laughs> and uh, and just too small of a market for the data points to really be super meaningful. Um, and then Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, then we can probably group the rest into those bigger categories. So maybe starting from the Windsor corridor, corridor, which seems to be down about 15 to 20% across most of the markets in those areas. Yeah, and uh, by the sounds of it, most of those have settled or there's quite a bit of opportunism or you know knife catching starting again in those smaller markets because we've had a lot of listeners contacting us about getting into properties in some of these locations. So looking at southwestern Ontario, you know, you're kind of London, Woodstock, all the way up to the Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo area, those markets, we are seeing similar kind of drops all the way down to like the 15, 20% range. And moving into the greater Toronto area and the greater Golden Horseshoe, you're seeing drops in a similar range. I think 14% in the GTA to over 20% in some of the more fringe markets in the greater Golden Horseshoe that really saw run-ups and, and heavy speculation during the frenzy. Now, let's head north to one of my favorite spots in Canada, Ontario Cottage Country. Uh, we've had a few different boards reporting like Lakelands, North Bay, the Sudbury area, Peterborough and the Kawartha Lakes that are all a little bit less impacted, most of which are actually seeing prices down only in the 10 to 13% range, a little more digestible there than, than the 20% we've seen. Honestly, that, that actually surprised me and it still does. I'm super curious about the fate of the cottage country in the next couple of years in Ontario. I'm hearing about a lot of Airbnb operators as an example in cottage country where they're usually fully booked for the summer by now and currently have no bookings. And I said earlier on that cottages could definitely become a liquidity trap and, and I'm curious if we do end up seeing that happen. 
Okay, let's stop right there. Let's talk about that. What do you mean by liquidity trap? I'm going to hand you the dictionary microphone, Dan. Uh, yes. Give so us a little definition here. Cottages are historically illiquid. They used to take 100 days to sell. And at the beginning of COVID, because of staycations and whatever was happening, people were buying them in a, in a frenzied state. And so they, they shortened to like a two-week sales cycle on average. And now it's kind of balanced out to like a month or two that it takes to sell. But nowhere, still nowhere near. So the absorption, the liquidity of these properties is is still way lower than than it historically is and these are assets that also cost money every month so you're burning money and you're not able to exit the asset and then you're trapped in liquidity it, it you can't you can't get the money out of the asset and so um, I, I think that's really just sort of the summary of my one of my fears when I saw what I thought was a cottage bubble evolving which seems to have kind of worked itself out I think it's maybe actually the you, know, you could be hopeful that the market doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to pop from its frothy state. So um, let's get to the last Ontario markets, and then we'll move to Quebec and the East Coast, and then wrap this up. Yep, sounds good. If anyone uh, out there is selling a cottage, uh, haul at your boy. I I would love to buy it. Um, okay, let's move over to the capital region, including Kingston and Ottawa. Redo looking at less of a drop than some others in the province, around ten to twelve percent, based on uh, Korea HPI. And then crossing the border near everybody's favorite city, Cornwall, Ontario, <laughs> over into yeah. Quebec, uh, <laughs> Montreal, seeing a relatively unchanged market down just 5.3%, uh, which, you know, it's meaningful, it's down, um, but but not nearly as bad as what we're seeing in some of these cities. Uh, similar story in Quebec, barely down, uh, you know, less impacted even than Montreal, uh, 2.8% since uh, this time last year, but posting its biggest monthly drop in the last month of 6.3%. So, you know, some people might be like, how does that even work? Um, so it's clearly not letting up on the price drops here, and there's still a bit of a downtrend. And so we'll likely see bigger year over year drops posted over this year in Quebec City. So something to look for. Um, and maybe if you're an investor in that market, you know, there's ability to exercise patience. Okay, let's keep this via rail train going all the way to the East Coast with New Brunswick, who is actually unchanged this month and up about 0.3% since December and up 4% compared to this time last year. It's a similar story in Fredericton, which is still up 5% year over year, but uh, down since last month. Uh, Greater Moncton, 3.3% up year over year, slightly down since last month. And St. John, however, made up in price December, and it's now up 5.5% since last year. Dan, finish us off here. So Halifax and the rest of Nova Scotia is up over 5%. PEI is up 4% year over year, and Newfoundland is up 5.6% year over year. So the East Coast is really kind of holding strong and giving us some good news here to report for the Canadian real estate market which is, it's nice to see. And and I think it really goes back to that story that uh, about credit dependence, right? A lot of these markets that didn't see these run-ups, didn't see people jumping into variable rates to try and qualify, to try and reduce their interest rate so they could increase their borrowing power and really not as interest rate sensitive. And it shows that affordability is really one of those underlying factors in the stability of a housing market. And that's why we talk about housing affordability so much on this, because it, it does... It really is a core metric in in investing, and it's a it's a yeah. core fundamental in investing. Love it. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope everyone enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed putting it together and talking about it. If you got any questions or want to work with Dan or I, just reach out to the show. Email in the show notes. Leave us a five-star rating and write us a review. Thanks so much for listening. And for sure, 
um, it's it's cool. Like we do appreciate it when when listeners reach out. We we are real estate professionals by trade, so we love. Like I, I was out a couple of weeks ago or last week uh, with a listener looking at a power of sale, and he mentioned, and it's so, it was so cool that he was like, I saw this. It, it, it's a power of sale. They're offering a VTB, you know, and like quoting things from the show, and and so <laughs> it's so and you know it's really really cool. He was expressing his gratitude for all of the things that he's learned in his investing journey, um, and, and it's just really exciting to be able to work with uh with listeners on the show so you know we love it if you reach out uh to actually get out in the field and and look for properties with us and do deals with us i mean that's really what we're here for that's what we do as our day-to-day job despite what you may think we do not spend 40 hours a week working on this podcast (laughs) love it see you later everybody the canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.